Welcome to Just You Pod, especially heinous. I'm Gabe. I'm Tasha. We are on season four, episode five, Disappearing Acts. Yeah. Okay. I'm Anyways. so excited to do this episode, dude. I've been tempering my expectations because I know that you're not. It was good. It was good. It was really good. Yeah. <sighs> Sometimes I was like, oh, God. And then I was like, as I kept going, I'm like, man, this is really good. Yay. I mean, also the amount of incredible actors in this episode mm-hmm. added to it. But oh, I'm not going to get married to like needing you to like the chaser. Because the last time I did a mafia thing, I remember being like, oh, I just I want your elbows on the table and your little fists under your chin. Yeah. But if I don't get that, I don't get it. It's fine. You might just play Candy Crush the whole time and it is what it is. So here we go. Do you want me to start or do you want to start? Uh, you can start. It's fine. Opening scene. Here we go. Two dudes are walking through an office. One has a box full of shit like he's just gotten fired and the other dude's walking into the elevator or whatever. You know who the guy holding the box is? Oh, Jesus, who? Fucking Todd Berry. JK, it's Michael Kelly, but they always look so much alike. And I'm always like, oh, is that Todd Berry? I have no idea who any of those people are. Todd Berry is a comedian. Michael Kelly, uh, he was in House of Cards. He plays like Kevin Spacey's right-hand man or whatever. We've had this conversation because in the season two episode, Slaves, he was in it and we did the same exact thing. So he'll also be back in 2006 on SVU. So we'll do this again in like a year. Okay. Also, can we take a shot every time someone in this episode was in The Sopranos? Because he's one. Okay. Okay. These two dudes are walking to the elevator. One of them just got fired. The other one's telling the box guy to fight back against Amanda, who is their COO. And he's like, go to human resources. She's a total bitch. They walk into a conference room. It's super messy. And they're like, oh my God, it smells like piss in here. And they start looking around. They're like, what happened? One of the dudes opens the closet door and fucking Amanda, their boss, is tied up and naked on the ground. Mm-hmm. She has like sh- like a thing around her neck and everything. She's like fucked up. Yeah. And there's like blood on her and stuff. One of the dudes covers her in his jacket. He's like, who did this? But she can't respond. She can't say anything. Mm-hmm. Cut to the hospital. Benson and Stabler are talking to a lady doctor. Gabe says it's yet another lady doctor, but I'm pretty sure this is the same doctor we've seen before. But oh, probably okay. not because... We know the New York rule, one female doctor at a time. She says that Amanda has perineal bruising and tearing from rape and sodomy and friction burns around the neck, wrists, and ankles. She also has a cut to her skull from being hit with a sharp object. There were no fluids in the rape kit because the perp wore a condom. Amanda never said anything to the doctor, but she tells the detectives that other cops may have heard something from her. Benson and Stabler enter Amanda's room and she's being completely manhandled and arrested by two FBI agents. Benny and Staves are like, what the fuck is going on? We need to interview her. She's a rape victim. And these FBI people are like, that's not our concern. Bye. And they take Amanda away in handcuffs. I love her attitude with them, by the way. She's like, Jesus fucking Christ. I was raped. Jesus. And she's just exhausted by this blatant power move. Yeah. She's being arrested for securities fraud, violating interstate and international banking laws, money laundering for a criminal enterprise, and tax evasion, which are more important than being treated and completing a rape kit and interview. We all know that. Mm -hmm. But Benson and Stabler need to get her story about the rapist because this dude is still out there. Also, now that I'm looking up everyone to check for Sopranos roles, the woman playing Amanda is one of the menage a trois women in The Devil's Advocate. (gasps) Really? 
Yeah. Just like a soup's random credit. Whoa. Theme song. So now we see Benson and Stabler waiting in this jailhouse. It looks like they've been waiting there forever. And they're pacing around like, where the fuck is Amanda? So... This other lady comes in and apologizes for them having to wait. I love this lady. Oh, I know. Yeah. She introduces herself as assistant DA Claudia Williams. This is fucking Pam Greer. She's a Mm -hmm. fucking icon. Jackie Brown, Foxy Brown, Mm -hmm. Kit from the L Word. Gabe, she was in Jawbreaker. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, my God, Jawbreaker. We love her. I know. I had to throw that in for you. How did you know? Because you brought up Jawbreaker like nine times on the pod. Really? Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned it a couple times, not them, but you say it every time we talk. Every time we talk, you're like, oh my God, have you seen Jawbreaker? It's the suits of our friendship. <laughs> so Claudia tells them that they can't interview man. That's not true. It's not. The, se- <laughs> the secretary The secretary is the suits of our friendship. <laughs> so Claudia tells them that they can't interview Amanda about her federal crimes. And they're like, well, what if her attacker is directly related to her federal shit? Like that completely ties our hands. And Claudia Mm -hmm. says if Amanda's associates were connected with the attack, she would be in the morgue. So Mm -hmm. that just gives you an idea of who we're fucking dealing with. Mm -hmm. Stabler keeps fishing for more info from Claudia about who she's connected to in the mob, Mm -hmm. etc. And she's not having it. She's like... Yeah. Fuck off, dude. Benson tells her that they're not interested in her case. They're just trying to find a rapist. And she's trying to slow explain. And she's like, we can't do that if you obstruct justice. And this lady's like, fuck you. We're not stopping shit. You never filed a 61. And until you do, you got to do what I say, bitch. I'm in charge in this situation. So they bring Amanda in and Claudia's like, all right, I'm going to wait outside while you guys talk to her. But she waited outside with like her ear pressed against the door because she keeps a close watch. Yeah. Amanda cannot talk about these fucking dudes. Mm -hmm. So Amanda sits down and she's super bruised up, beat up. It's awful to see. Mm -hmm. She says that the day that she was attacked, she went to the gym to work, to lunch, to work, meetings, work. Conveniently, her gym is two blocks away from her work, of course. Yeah, of course. (laughs) She did say that. She did say, it's just a couple of blocks away. And we're like, we know. (laughs) Honey, we know. She said she was attacked around 11 p.m. Everyone was already gone. She had heard some noises and opened the door and some dude rushed in on her. It all happened so fast and she only really caught a tiny glimpse of the guy. She said he was white and average height. No distinguishing features that she can remember. But she did say that he said it was payback. It's possible the people that she's federally accused of working with were sending her a message, but she says that they wouldn't make a move without Sergei's say-so. All of a sudden, DA Claudia steps in and cuts her off. She's like, that's enough. Yeah. yeah. Get them the fuck out of here. We're out of here. And I'm like, oh boy, Amanda gave them information that Claudia mm-hmm. didn't want them to have, but they're like, num, 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 num. Thanks for the bits. We're going to go do more with this. Yeah. Stabler was like, Yeah. Yes. Oh, there's so much organized crime foreshadowing here just with his energy for this case. Yeah. I loved it. I'm like, oh my God, 20 years in advance. He's like, I got to go to Rome. I'll get you one day, Duchovny. (laughs) Back at Amanda's office, CSI is going through all of the stuff. A dude is telling Munch that there's so much urine everywhere that they have enough to test. There's a ton of fingerprints everywhere. The perp definitely raped her on the table and then peed all over her to humiliate her. They did find an Atlas cleaning crew jumpsuit stuffed under a desk so the guy maybe got in pretending to work there. In the lab, Benson is talking to this lab guy who looks exactly like the little scientist character from the animated movie Atlantis. Like 100%. Right? 
Did you when have to was, look him up? No, I knew exactly who you were talking about <laughs> when I'm like watching, you know, I've got the things next to each other, right? When I'm taking my notes. So I've got your notes here and I'm watching and I read that sentence and I just went, oh, I love you. <laughs> I just loved you so hard. And then you made another comparison to somebody later that again was like perfect. Oh my God. I can't wait. I can't remember. I'm like, oh my God, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. <laughs> So he found some pubes that didn't match the victim, which was a really weird thing to say after that conversation, right? It felt really weird coming out of my mouth. It felt really weird coming out of my mouth. That was my nickname in high school. Okay. All right. He found some pubes that didn't match the victims. The DNA matches to other rape cases in Brooklyn. Also, the perp has diabetes. They think that he's like maybe like in his 40s and doesn't know he has diabetes. Yeah. So the guy's like, oh, it's probably type two because young people know how to regulate their shit better because they oh, right. know they learn from a young age, which isn't necessarily true. Because I've known a couple type one diabetics who didn't manage it well because they were just like were over. It's, it's, you know, exhausting to monitor that shit all the time and whatever. Mm-hmm. In the squad room, Daddy Cragen is going over all the other rape victims in Brooklyn. The first one is Petra Ivankov. She was raped six months ago. She worked as a stripper at the Voga Club, which is a known Russian mob front. She also was the mob boss Sergei Perlman's girlfriend. Toots chimes in and says that she was killed after talking to the SVU about her rape. Nobody goes to the cops for anything, right? Correct. The second victim is Sergei's little sister, Tatiana. She had uterine cancer and was attacked after a chemo treatment, which is fucking awful. That's bananas. Yeah. She died of cancer three months ago. Were these women attacked for their connection to Sergei? That's what they're trying to figure out. Yeah. Organized crime shut down SVU in those cases because Sergei is a big player. Mm -hmm. Like, they majorly stalled their investigations. Munch says that if they're going to try to find someone that has a grudge against Sergei, it's going to be hard because he's a big deal and it's probably a long list of people. So far, the lab is still working on fingerprint elimination. Munch and Toots contacted the Atlas Cleaning Company and also checked the cameras outside of Amanda's office building. There was a car blocking the door, but it's kind of hard to see because it was like, I don't know, behind a dumpster or some shit. Mm-hmm. It's a late model Ford Focus with Jersey license plates that start with JLQ. And it skis in its jeans. <laughs> no, I <don't> yeah. <laughs> they, oh, I just imagine a fucking <laughs> a car, car in denim <laughs> skiing. <laughs> Stabler thinks they need to go down to Brighton Beach where all the Russian mob people hang out and ask mm-hmm. some questions. Yeah. Their friends are going to be all over their shit if they do, though. Craig tells Benson and Stabler that there actually is a connection between all of the victims. They all work out at that same gym. Mm. But they also don't know. Well, they don't know if Sergey's sister did, though. Sergey. I am saying Sergey. Okay. <laughs> okay. You guys, from now on, I'm saying Sergey because I can't fucking do it. At the workout studio. That is the actual name of the gym. Yes. Can you be any less clever with your gym name? <laughs> and then I thought to myself, okay, fucking Chandler. I know. I was going to make a Chandler joke, and then I was like, I'll just leave it alone. She's had a hard couple of days. <laughs> So Benson and Stabler are talking to this little gym employee at the front desk. Um, (laughs) this is actor Tom Geary, fucking Scotty Smalls, the kid from the Sandlot. Such a formative movie for my adolescence. Yes. Holy shit. Yes. He just got here. He can't have s'more of nothing. JK, he's been there. They showed up. Yes. (laughs) This is him from the Sandlot. He actually acts a bunch after the Sandlot and I got a little bit into it. 
mm. when I was reading about him. But he's a great actor. He's fantastic. Yeah. Turns out all three of the women had gym memberships there that all started within the last year and a half. Benson asked mm-hmm. him for a list of everybody that works there and all of the gym members. He says that his dad owns the place. And they ask him if there's anybody over 40 that works there. Because remember, they got that little tip from the guy in the Atlantis ship uh, yeah. about the age of the person, most likely. And he's like, well, just my dad. And then he starts getting kind of defensive. Like, what are you saying? Like, my dad's assaulting people or something? He doesn't know any of these people. He never even comes here. What are you talking about? And they're like, what car does he drive? And he's like, uh, Ford Focus. <laughs> and they're like, huh. And he's like, what? <laughs> what would they see? Well, Benson and Stabler show up to the kid's dad's house. And what's in the driveway? A Ford Focus with a license plate that starts with JLQ. Dad comes out of the house. His name is Peter Sipes. Um, he is played by Uncle Frank. No. Brother Peter, <laughs> Kevin's dad in Home Alone. Oh my God. Oh. Yeah. He also <laughs> played the shitty boyfriend of Tom Hanks' grown-up love interest in the 1988 movie Big, which was another movie I fucking loved as a kid. Oh. Anyway, this actor's name is John Hurd. He had 180 acting credits before he died of a heart attack in 2017. Oh, he died? R.A.P. Yeah. Oh, I almost forgot. He was in The Sopranos. Glug, 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 glug. Okay, so they want to take him down to the precinct to talk. Yeah. Peter Sipes. So at the precinct, he's all pissy about having to come all the way down there. All of a sudden, a handcuffed dude says, Gregory, (laughs) is that you? (laughs) It's Mike from LA. I thought you were dead. Peter's like, you're drunk. I don't know who you are. Dude's like, I swear. I swear you got a twin out there. You know that? (laughs) (laughs) I swear. I swear I saw your twin. That's exactly how that guy talked. And, th- and then I'm like, oh, my God, is this going to be like a fucking one twin is really bad and the other twin is good trying to frame the other twin and then their DNA matches because they're twins. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> and if anybody was going to play themselves as twins, it's fucking this guy. Spoiler. Okay. It's, there, there's no twin. There's not any twin. Yeah. In an interrogation room, Stabler offers Peter something to drink and he's like, yeah, I'll take a soda. And then Stabler is like, well, <sighs> diabetics shouldn't have sugar. Idiot. Maybe you want water. What are you, like a rude mother-in-law? Like, I, you asked me what I wanted. (laughs) Yeah. Mm, Maybe you should just have some water. You want your belt to buckle, not your chair. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) But Peter has no idea what he's talking about. Then Stabler asked where he was the night before last. He said he was at work. He works the night shift and is the shift supervisor at a packaging plant. So he also has this gym and he works a shit ton. So he really has no idea what's going on and they tell him that it's about rape. He insists he didn't rape anybody and they want to do a mouth swab, but he says that if they want his DNA, they're going to have to get a warrant. You bitch. Outside the interrogation room, Benson tells Kragen that they don't have enough for a warrant. Kragen wants to do a voice lineup, but fucking voice lineup shit sucks in court. Really? Because we've seen you guys use it. Right. But really, all they need is for Amanda to pick this guy's voice out of six, and that's enough for a warrant. But how are they going to get around the fucking fed lady? How? Yeah, Claudia. She does not want Amanda talking to them or going anywhere. And Kragen's like, I'm going to fucking make Cabot figure it out. <laughs> so Benson and Steeler are at the jail and there's this guy at the computer and he's like, dude, there's no Amanda here. Yeah, there fucking is. I, we just talked to her yesterday and he's like, there's not even a record of an Amanda even being here. And they're like, what? What the hell's going on, Tasha? I'll tell you what's going on, Gabe. The fucking mafia, dude. <laughs> <laughs> The mafia dude. 
Also, this dude comes back to SVU two more times, but not for a while. He was not in The Sopranos. Okay. Benson Stabler, like, frustrated stomp. They they stomp into the squad room, yelling that Amanda's gone. Craigens says that he got a call from the U.S. Attorney's Office. As soon as they make an arrest, they will produce Amanda. But how can they do this without Amanda? She's the complaining witness. Mm -hmm. Toot says he ran the prints off Peter's coffee cup, and he has no record whatsoever. Munch went and did some deep diving and found out that Peter and his son have consecutive social security numbers, which is like impossible and i guess this happened a while back where the whole family had consecutive social security numbers and it turns out they were in the witness protection program why would the witness protection program do that yeah i don't know it seems like like a really big misstep yeah like a super easy thing to figure out yeah so this is like reminding me of that mike guy that recognized peter and called him gregory so they gotta go talk to that dude but if they do they're gonna blow peter's cover as a protective witness munch and toots are gonna grab the dude and talk to him and hold on to him after so he can't talk to anyone yeah like for how long can they that was a dumb thing for me because this shit could go on for god knows how long yeah Stabler is worried that they're going to have a hard time getting around the feds because Peter's in the witness protection program. Craigan said, if you commit a crime in the program, you go to prison just like everybody else. Sammy the Bull is serving 15 for dealing drugs. That's right. And I was like... <sighs> <laughs> he just loves it. Do you know sh- who he is? No. I do. Who is he? The guy I'm going to tell you all about. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> You're excited. I am. Oh, my God. I have been... Okay. Okay. I'm still falling down this K-hole. Right. Okay. But if Peter is still testifying to stuff, the feds won't give him up super easy. Yeah. In the jail, Munch and Toots find the Mike guy who recognized Peter. He's gabing hard in his denim jacket with his collar flipped up. Fuck, Dude's got a... You didn't notice? No, it's probably just like, man, that guy looks good. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he comes back on screen later and his collar's flipped up even harder. I'm like, don't starch that, you dick. <laughs> So this guy has burglary and stealing purses and stuff on his record. He says, I'm not really good at it. Otherwise, I wouldn't keep getting pinched. Which I thought was funny. I like a self-aware criminal. They let him know what they do at SVU. Because he's like, what are you guys doing here? What do you do? And they're like, uh, we fucking look up rapists and child molesters. So what's up? And he's like, well, mm-hmm. in that case, I can honestly say whatever it is. I didn't do it. I'm no short eyes, which I think he meant is like a pedophile. Yeah, that's what I thought. I just never heard that term before. Like, I hadn't either. Used like that. Yeah. Yeah. He's it's... like, I'm no short eyes and I've never touched a woman I didn't have to pay for. And I'm like, <laughs> weird flex. Anyway, they tell him to chill out and they just want some info on Peter, the guy he called Gregory, right? Uh-huh. He goes, oh my God, I was drunk. That guy couldn't have been Gregory because Gregory's been dead for a super long time. And then he starts to tell them about who this Gregory person was. Gregory mm-hmm. Rosovich. He used to run with some bad Russian dudes in West Hollywood, kidnapped stealing gas, Medicaid fraud, bootleg vodka, bunch of stuff. Mike knew him because he himself used to be what he calls a gas jockey. He was in charge of pumping hijacked diesel. He says that Gregory died in a car bomb. And this guy starts to get kind of freaked out and says he doesn't want to know if it's really him. The Russians had a big contract out on Gregory. He says, if you guys open this up, you're asking for trouble. Okay. Mm Flip, flip, flip. That's his color. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah. Mike heard Greg was spilling the tea to the feds, and that's why they wanted him dead. Leading up to this, the Russians killed a lot of Greg's people, his friends, business associates. They even killed his parents. Mm. That's when Mike moved to New York. He's like, I had to get as far away from it as possible. Clearly, it wasn't far enough. And then he turned around, and his collar was like nine inches high. (laughs) Back at Greg's house, Benson and Stabes roll up to see a woman putting up a for sale sign. She aggressively pops her head into the passenger side window. She's like, hi! 
Fun House Worm Cookies. And uh, she's like, I don't know where the family is. A woman named Claudia Williams gave me the listing. And I'm like, what the fucking ADA? Yeah. She says that when they got there, there was a moving crew wicked hustling and they got everything cleaned out in under four hours. Never seen anything like it. It was incredible. Come by this house. And she was like, <laughs> giant line of coke. <laughs> okay, now we're at the office of the assistant U.S. attorney. Cabot is with Benson Stabler and she's like, you guys need to shut the fuck up and let me do the talking, which we know isn't going to happen. In the office, it's the lady from the jail. She's Claudia Williams. She will not tell them where Peter is. His Witsec name is Peter Sipes. We're going to refer to him as Peter. Yeah. Stabler tells her that she is fucking harboring a rapist using taxpayer dollars. And she was like, I'm sorry, was there a trial I was unaware of, detective? Cabot hands her the warrant for Peter's DNA. She's like, okay, I'll I'll get it drawn and I'll have it delivered to the lab. But that's a no can do. <laughs> it has to be drawn by SVU because of the evidentiary chain. Peter told Claudia that he was recognized by that Mike guy and that's why they had to move him. So this Peter guy has, has been giving them so much info on the mob and they will do anything to protect him. She's like, everything that we know about the mob right now is because of this guy. And Stabler's pissed because, you know, women were raped. Claudia says that if Peter did that shit, he's going to prison, but she really thinks they have the wrong guy. They ask where Amanda is and how she's connected to Peter. All of these victims are connected to the mob, and so is Peter. That can't be a coincidence. She doesn't think that Peter has a motive. Now Benson's getting pissed and throws down photos of the victim. She's like, this dude is escalating. Does somebody have to die for you to fucking give a shit? And then Stabler's like, why are you protecting Peter? She gets up dramatically and walks Mm. over to this bulletin board that like rotates or whatever and turns it around and there's a ton of photos all over it. Yeah, when she flipped this bulletin board, the Mm -hmm. music swells like it normally swells, like the wee, wee, wee. But then Mm -hmm. there's also this intense like heartbeat like over the top of it. And I'm like, it got me so fucking jacked. Claudia Claudia says that there's been 257 murders all ordered by Sergei. Some are policemen and businessmen that wouldn't pay extortion. Even kids because they might grow up and seek revenge. These mob people really tie off the fucking all their ends. Mm -hmm. They've solved almost half of these murders and have connected California through Peter. Does that answer your question? She says. Cabot, Benson, and Stabler are doing a walk and talk. Claudia can't stop them, but she can seriously slow them down. Stabler is super mad about all this, but Cabot is right. Claudia is just doing her job. She's supposed to protect her witnesses, just like Stabler and Benson are trying to do their jobs by protecting their victims. Yeah, he's challenging Cabot for playing devil's advocate and just like explaining to him like she's a fucking preschool teacher about what Claudia's job is. It's like she also has a job to do, honey. Yeah. Benson and Stabler are super positive that Peter is the rapist. Cabot is not sure because she doesn't understand why, if he was in the witness protection program, why he would rape people that were connected to the mob. Right? It doesn't make sense. It really kind of mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. It just yeah. doesn't make sense. Right. Like you're like dipping your toe in to like, this doesn't make sense. Okay. Benson gets mad and she's like, so you're fucking saying that organized crime takes precedent over rape? And it's just getting like fucking annoying. How do you not understand this stuff, you guys? Yeah. This is just the part of the episode where everybody shits on Cabot because they're frustrated. And we get that, like, what you guys are dealing with is super fucked. But everyone has Mm -hmm. tried to explain to you, yes, this is going to be hard for you to do. And there are certain aspects of it that you can't be a part of Mm -hmm. for many reasons. Because I'm very deep in this. This is Claudia talking. Right. Here are... 200 and something people. I'm telling you that kids have been murdered. Right. And you're like, but my thing is the most important. It's not, it's not a contest. Yeah. 
Cabot says that the argument could be made for both. They don't have a lot of time and they feel like this guy is escalating and the next woman he rapes, he'll probably kill. Cabot says she's going to file a habeas in the morning and if Claudia doesn't produce Peter, she'll be found in contempt. In the chambers of Judge Ernest Volp, Cabot and Claudia are there and they're kind of arguing. Claudia says that she had offered to have the blood drawn and sent to them. Cabot argues that the case isn't federal, so that falls under SVU jurisdiction. And the judge is like, I agree with Cabot. This judge played Felix in Rooftop, and we talked about his voice for a while in that episode. Like, it's so baritone and eggy. I just love this guy's voice. <gasps> he Do you was remember? The guy that, was like, that he was like, oh, I, I watched her grow up. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Claudia doesn't think it matters who takes the blood. And I mean, I think she knows what the argument is, like what they're saying before yeah. it's even said. We just have to lay all our cards on the table, you know? Right. Cabot just says it. She's worried about the chain of evidence. What if Claudia gives them someone else's blood? And Claudia's like, are you fucking kidding me? Mm -hmm. But I'd be and fucking... And Cabot's like, question mark, mistakes are made all the time. You could mm -hmm. pass it off as that, or I could pretend like I truly think it's a mistake. It's all very... Nobody's trusting each other. Everybody's shifty-eyed at each other. Mm -hmm. Because the whole reason Claudia wouldn't want to send him down there is because what if they're fucking dirty cops? She doesn't know Benson and Stabler. You know what I yeah. mean? She's she's in the FB fucking eye. Right. But then Cabot's like, well, you know, you need him for all this information. So you might give him someone else's blood so that he doesn't go to prison. You know what I mean? It's like Yes. But then as soon as Cabot is like, mm, well, mistakes are made all the time. Then the judge is like, well, mistakes do happen. That's true. So I'm more inclined to have the FBI do it because they have better lab resources than New York City. Mm, yep. And I was like, oof. Damn it. Mm -hmm. almost had him she was right there yeah nope he's like you're right she shouldn't have said mistakes happen she shouldn't have even said that no because she was saying something shady she was being passive aggressive and it's like no you're not being direct honey not what you wanted so cuts to claudia walking into the squad room she's got four vials of peter's blood stabler's suspicious that it's not peter's but claudia has signed affidavits from the technicians i mean she just has eyes dotted t's crossed and she's like uh, or are you going to argue conspiracy now? Mm -hmm. Claudia knows that they'll want to retest the blood, but she's like, well, I already tested it for you. And Stabes is like, don't tell us the DNA didn't match. And she just leaves. And as she walks away, not looking at him, she goes, fine, but Peter Sipes is clear and you still have a rapist out there. Oh, and I'm like, you are a bad fucking bitch. I know, I love her. So great. In Cragen's office, Benson and Staler come in Benson lets him know that Peter is innocent, but his Y chromosome matches the DNA in the rape kit. Also, did you notice how many fucking teddy bears Cragen has in his office? No, and you put that it's in your notes, and I thought about it for a long time. And you know what mm -hmm. conclusion I came to? What? They are in special victims, and he probably gives them to kids that come to the precinct. Oh, sure, yeah. Okay, so this means that the rapist is Gavin, Peter's son, the little cutie from the gym. Cragen says that Claudia probably won't put up a fight over Gavin. Stapler's like, yeah, right. She's good anyway. She does all she ever does is fight. So I don't think she can do anything without fighting. It's like, fuck off. She's not really doing a job. She's just here to make my life hard. Yeah. She only joined the FBI to make me fucking pissed. Her entire career was for this moment. What a ball buster. <laughs> what a ball buster. <laughs> he really doesn't like her. You know. No. Cragen tells him to go and talk to Claudia and if she doesn't cooperate, to arrest her. And I was like, damn. 
On the street, Benson and Stabler find Claudia standing over some bodies covered in sheets. Apparently, one of them was a new immigrant who wouldn't pay the, quote, protection fee by the Russian mob, and one of them was just an innocent bystander. She's like, see, this is what I'm dealing with, like, all the time. Yeah. They tell her about Gavin, who, by the way, is also diabetic. She's like, what? Stabler tells Claudia to give over Gavin, but she's like, I don't have him. Gavin left the program since they moved his father, and he refused to go. He said he was done with running. It wouldn't do any good to talk to Peter because they've severed all contact, and any contact that there is is coordinated and monitored by the marshal service. Stabler tells her that he fucking hopes that she's not hiding Gavin to keep Peter happy and talking. And then she's like, okay, you guys, I'm not going to say anything, but like, look for bad habits. Gavin has kind of a gambling problem, but you didn't hear that from me. She gives him a little tip. In the squad room, they did a deep dive on Gavin, and he's like gambling like he has fucking money or something. Mm -hmm. Peter so far has paid like 100K of his debts, but Peter can't afford it. Their fucking house has three mortgages on it, and they're behind on the gym lease. There's a lot of credit card charges to a Milano's restaurant. It's like a known Italian mob gambling front where people can pay their debts with credit cards. It looks like Gavin hasn't paid in a while, and people there are probably pissed. At Milano's restaurant, Benson Stabler bust in and there's a bunch of dudes hanging around. No food. Yeah. <laughs> it's just people gambling. And this guy comes up to him and this guy, yeah. he looks like a character that fucking Ben Stiller would play and kill it. <laughs> yeah. Right? Oh my God. Didn't he come up and you're like, oh my God, yes. Yeah. This guy has a patterned silk shirt unbuttoned to his fucking belly button <laughs> with his hairy chest and gold chain underneath and a quite unsuccessful hairpiece. But yeah. his glasses are like tinted a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's perfect. His yeah. name is Joe Tucci. Ooh, shot glasses out. He was in The Sopranos. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Stabler says he's going to shut shit down because it's an illegal club. Joe's like, you're not from fucking Vice. And Stabler says, Vice. I don't need to be from Vice to ruin your fucking day. And he was like touching his nose with his nose. Mm -hmm. I mean, the foreshadowing. Oh, yeah. This is when Stabler's like, I want my own spinoff show about the mafia in 20 years. (laughs) Benson's like, you know what? Let's just call the cops and fucking have them come fuck the shit up. And he's like, okay, okay. What can I do? They want to know about Gavin. Joe says that Peter is supposed to come in later to talk about Gavin's debts. Gavin owes Joe 400K and counting. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Yeah. Joe let Peter know that if Gavin skips out on any payments and runs away, he'll find out and it won't be awesome for Gavin. Right. So Benson and Stabler are like, you know what? We'll just hang out. We'll just hang out and wait for Peter to show up. And he's like, oh, great. Well, he obviously did because in an interrogation room, Benny and Staves finally have Peter. He says that Gavin didn't rape anybody. But Stabler's like, man, you totally knew it was him when you were in here. And we asked you if you were diabetic. Where the hell is he? Peter's like, "Mm, I don't know. Then he starts talking to them about raising his family in the situation that they were in. He's really Mm -hmm. upset. He doesn't know what he can do to help. He tells them that Gavin was 11 when they went into witness protection. And Mm -hmm. he had to change locations and names and background stories five times in the last 10 years. This kid doesn't even know who the fuck he is. Gavin's mom died before they went into the program. It's why Peter contacted the feds in the first place. The Russians murdered her as a punishment for skimming. So Peter used to be a chemist and was approached by the Michalian Organizacia for a smuggling scam. The way he said it sounds like when people say Mexico in the middle of a very American accent, you know? Yeah, when they're, when like, they're like, hi, um, I would like to order a quesadilla. You know, and you're like, <laughs> yeah. you're like, relax, Steve, you know? Yeah. And he's like, uh, you know what? Could I just get my mozzarella on the side? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can't wait for the summer because we get to go to Brazil. <laughs> it's like, calm down. España. 
España. <laughs> so Peter helped this organization with a bunch of shit. His wife handled the money, but she was caught stealing. So they fucking murdered her. She was a part of the organization's immediate family. And Peter met her during a vodka scam. Uh-huh. He's like, if they can murder their own flesh and blood, who knows what else they could do? She was the one that was skimming. She, yeah, she was the one that was they, skimming. They so that's like, why they killed her. Yeah, because they were like, oh, you fucking skimmed and cost your wife his life. And he's like, actually, no. Mm-hmm. She was doing it. Yeah. After they got married, he rose quickly in the ranks to Forde Izaconia, which means thief-in-law. There's probably around 5,000 members in the U.S., mostly assimilated and without even an accent. Peter told Gavin everything about what he and his mom did because he felt like he should know because Gavin sacrificed his life for it. I mean, he didn't have roots. He lost his mom. His whole family's fucking killed. He's Peter felt like yeah. he owed it to him. They're like, well, the mob's got to be on to Gavin. Gavin's targeting their women specifically. Gavin's going to hide probably because Peter got him off. He can't afford to pay bills anymore, which means that Gavin is as good as dead. But Gavin's super addicted to gambling and isn't going to be able to hide for too long. Benson goes, if you love him, turn him in. Yeah, and then I'm like, oh, sure, let me guess, because you guys can protect him. The marshals are bringing Gavin to Peter for a supervised visit one more time before they move him again. And Peter gets choked up and says, all I ask is that you don't hurt my son. Oh, powerful. He like really did a good job. Yeah. In the squad room, Craigan gives them a warrant for Gavin. Craigan wants to make sure they keep everything super clean, no fights with the feds, and Benson and Stabler are off to Connecticut. On the street, Benson and Stabler are hanging in a car waiting for everything to go down. So this car rolls up and it's not even 50 feet away, right? Yeah. It's like 20 feet away. And it's the middle of the day and Benson gets all fidgy and she's like, car! Fucking Stabler sits up straight as he possibly can. Like he's got a board duct taped to his torso. Yeah. And legit grabs a pair of binoculars binoculars <laughs> big ones big bird watching binoculars yeah. in the middle of the day it's the most don't be suspicious but being the most <laughs> suspicious anybody's ever been don't be suspicious don't be suspicious, don't don't be be suspicious. <laughs> and i was literally dying i like immediately texted tasha because i was like i cannot believe this first she was like oh my god you have to pick out the thing in the episode that i thought was the funniest i'm like yay i can't wait and she goes never mind i have to send you this picture right now and <laughs> sent me the one of stabler with his gigantic binoculars i mean his binoculars were so long that gavin was actually perched on the end of them like a bird like they were just so gigantic <laughs> and then stabler's like it's him <laughs> because they see through the huge binoculars that gavin's in the back seat the driveway was like right where benson stabler's car was like <laughs> He's like, it's him. To me, it's weird when like two people are just parked on the side of the road as it is. Yes. You know how you're like, what are they, you know? But then to pull up to like when your car turns and you see the one person get like, oh, and the other person sit up straight and grab binoculars. You're like, I can see you doing that. You know, it's daytime. And these fucking marshals who are in charge of protecting this kid, like they don't have any training and I don't know, scanning the 20 foot radius around them. We'll post a picture of the binoculars. Oh my God. Two marshals and Gavin open the garage door and you start to hear Gavin screaming, Dad! Benson and Stabler run over with their guns out and the marshals turn their guns on Benson and Stabler. They're like, fucking drop it. There are multiple times in this episode that Benson, she can sound like a bad bitch in situations, but in these, for some reason, she sounds like a whiny teenager to me. Yeah, she was like, so she, she was like, God, uh, we're cops, you guys. <laughs> right. And the guy's like, drop your fucking gun or I'm shooting you in the face. Yeah, he had the wildest eyes ever. 
Like, yes. I believe that he would shoot them. So this guy, the Wild Eye Marshal, mm-hmm. he was in the season two episode Manhunt. Okay. Also, he was in Shawshank Redemption, another movie I've watched way too many times. He makes them both get on the ground. Stabler and Benson kind of look up. You can see Gavin crying over his dad. His dad had blood running down the side of his head because he was shot, shot obviously. The, yeah. But his he's got like wide open dead eyes. And he mm-hmm. is such a great actor. He even plays mm-hmm. a dead body for fucking awesome yeah yeah and there's a dead fed next to him yeah that guy's dead too yeah <laughs> so the guy that told benson and stay on the ground tells the other guy to get their guns and cuff him which is like probably just humiliating for them mm. so in a cell stabler's being interrogated and oh how the stablers have turned <laughs> okay, oh, how, oh how the tables have turned this guy does not believe that peter gave stabler the address stabler's like i want my fucking phone call the guy's like who else did you talk to and then it cuts to olivia in another cell being interrogated and she says no one dude is asking benson why they pursued that mike guy from california when they knew that peter was in the federal witness protection program she says that they were after gavin and peter gave them the address two hands on the table this hard leaner is like in her face and goes and yet two men are dead one Mm -hmm. a deputy u.s marshal with a wife and three children (laughs) check me It cuts back to Stabler's cell and the guy is asking him how much he makes a year. Stabler laughed and he's like, uh, it depends on overtime. This dude sort of insinuated that Stabler probably has a hard time with money with 800 kids and shit. Yeah. And hinting at that maybe Benson Stabler were in the mob's pocket. Which is not a crazy assumption to make. No. Yeah. They see it all the time. Yeah. Stabler gets pissed and he gets up and he's like, I'm not talking anymore. He walks right up to the two-way glass and you can see Claudia's reflection on the other side. He says to the glass, because he knows Claudia's watching, mm-hmm. they all know he's a cop and he was just doing his job and that he's he's like, dude, I fucking use these tactics interrogating. Like, I know what you're doing. So as Benny and Stabler are sitting there, Claudia walks in and pissed as fuck tells them that they are officially under investigation by the FBI. Their records and jackets have been subpoenaed and the NYPD has been notified. She's so pissed at them for these people being dead. And she says that Benson and Stabler could have, I don't know, sold info to the mob and their fucking Bush League tactics could have led the mob there. Either way, it doesn't matter. They are Mm -hmm. to blame for this. Yeah. It all goes back to that Mike guy IDing Peter. He's not even in the precinct anymore. He's in Rikers doing 30 days for shoplifting, which means in Rikers, he has fucking phone rights and access to the general population. And didn't fucking Munch and Toot say they were going to hold him until the shit was whatever yeah so she's like it was probably that dude that leaked this shit benson says that if mike ratted out peter they aren't responsible but claudia disagrees and i also disagree i do too (laughs) you don't get to like push the domino and then be like well the fourth domino hit the rest of them so like that's not how that works they want gavin to be arrested right now and to bring them into the room but she can't she already sent him to svu hours ago oh he should be there boom in the precinct we see Gavin in a cell and Benson and Stabler are like clip clop super hard into the squad room and ask if Gavin's being processed. Craigan says three counts of rape just waiting on transport to the tombs. Everyone's asking how Benson and Stabler are holding up. Stabler's like my fucking civil liberties were trampled on. Like he doesn't kick chairs out from underneath people like every day. You <laughs> yes. know what I mean? Yeah. Like every day. Very one-sided. Yeah. He's like I didn't like it. <laughs> Is it going to change how I treat people? No. No. 
Yeah. So IAB was just there looking for shit. Cabot tells them they knew the risks, but continued the investigation anyway. And Claudia could argue that that info could have been passed on to criminals. Benson does the voice again and goes, but we didn't do anything wrong. Uh, she did. <laughs> they don't even need to prove that Benson and Stabler had a motive. They were so jacked on showing up the feds that two people are dead, including a marshal. Even if the feds can't make a case, the brass could fire them. Not the brass! <laughs> Fucking Craig. And now Benson and Stabler have to figure out who killed Peter to clear their own names. <laughs> Munch looked into what's going on with Mike and Rikers. He made some calls, one being to Brighton Beach. One being to Brighton Beach. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Brighton Beach. <laughs> Brighton Beach. You like Why rolled is- that R so hard. No. In Rikers, Munch and Toots are with Mike. He's saying he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, Munch asks him about the phone calls to a chick named Dina Wolfman in Brighton Beach. He's like, it's my girlfriend. I was just begging her to get me out of Rikers. Munch and Toots mm, already talked to Dina. She's a waitress for a mob restaurant. She has to work there because she's an illegal immigrant. Munch says, what better way to get her out from underneath the mob than to pass on some valuable information? Mike's like, um, the mob doesn't leave loose ends. If I had talked to them, they would have already had me killed in here. Back at the restaurant, Benson and Stabler bust in and Stabler like, weird grabs that Joe Tucci guy and throws mm-hmm. him to the ground and like puts a chair over his throat. Okay. So remember in Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, the first one when the orc had his shield around Aragorn's fucking neck in the tree and he was going to cut his head off, you know? It's no. like really close to the end. It was like that. Oh. You know what I almost did when you made that note? What? I almost, I was doing, I was like doing these notes at 11 o'clock last night and I was like, oh my God, should I watch like a chunk of this scene and the like flanking scenes from Lord of the Rings? Cause I don't remember this at all. And I don't even know if I saw it in its entirety and then kind of like go off on it. Like I knew a bunch to get you excited. <laughs> oh my God. I would lose it. I, I know. I thought about it for a second. I'm like, oh my God, I should do that right now. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. But no, I don't. I don't know that. I'm sure it was very intense. It was, I, lo- I love that for you. <laughs> I'm just going to let you have it. Like, this is your housewives. So it kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Where am I now? Hold on. OK. Tucci. He's like, I did not have fucking Peter killed. It's it's not me. He says Gavin paid his debt in cash like an hour after they left the last time. Also, they're in a place filled with ne'er-do-wells nobody says a word as stabes has this tucci guy pinned to the floor for the entire conversation i heard a couple guys go like whoa whoa hey whoa like a couple (laughs) you know but that was it just quiet carrots and peas carrots and peas whoa (laughs) in an interrogation room stabler walks in and asks gavin how his glucose level is doing burn (laughs) yeah he's like i got time i don't know geez (laughs) Gavin tells him his real name is Nikolai, but he's had a lot of names. There was a time where he was Thomas for only nine days, but fucked up and forgot the backstory. He's like, everyone was pissed at me. The lawyers, the marshals. They told him if he kept running his mouth, it was going to get him and his dad killed. And he was fucking 13. Like, can you imagine that? I don't know. That's so much pressure. You know, Stabler's like, hey, kids make mistakes. This is the time when you're supposed to do that. And he's like, well, you can't when you're in the witness protection program. He was 11 when they first got in the program and his dad, Peter, would sit at the window with a gun. His dad finally came clean to him about what was going on when he got his GED. So he lived those 10 years and having no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. He couldn't even get a high school diploma because they moved around so much. Gavin's like, "What what my dad wanted for me is to make him feel better about screwing me out of a future. 
that's why he told him. Yeah, because Stabler's like, well, he probably wanted you to be proud of him for like doing the right thing and your sacrifice wasn't for no reason and whatever. And he's like, no, you know, no. <laughs> and the Stabler's like, is that when you decided to get even? But Gavin's like, I don't know what you're fucking talking about. Stabler says that both his parents betrayed him. Stabler asks him why he's raping innocent women in a local mob boss's life. And then Gavin's pissed and he's like, innocent? Petra was a stripper living off the proceeds of Sergi's victims. Yeah, I said Sergi. <laughs> his sister Tatiana decided where the illegals would work off their debts. And Amanda was washing off the blood from their money. Those bitches lost their innocence way before I was even born. Shit. Stabler says... Raping those women didn't make you feel better or even the score for all those lost years, though, did it? Is that why your father had to die? What better way to get back at your old man for turning him over to the very people that he testifies against? And then Gavin's all teary-eyed. and He's like, that's not how it happened. I was like, Stabler says, oh, well, then why call a butcher shop in Brighton Beach? Why call the house your father was staying at if not to make sure he was home? Gavin is now like super teary-eyed and says, I didn't have the money and he wouldn't give me any more. God, what a fucking little bitch. Yeah. What was I supposed to do? They were going to kill me. And Stabe sighs and goes, yeah, now we will. Murder of a law mm -hmm. enforcement officer is an automatic needle. And then he starts to leave the room and Gavin yells, I didn't think they were going to kill him. Sergei just said he wanted to talk to my dad. Stabler like, stops in his tracks and turns around and closes the door. And the camera goes up to his face and he's like, you talked to fucking Sergei yourself? Gavin says, I met with his lieutenant i was there when he called him and i spoke to sergey on the phone the camera pans to sailor's face because he's like what the fuck is going on he's like in 2021 i'm gonna come back to new york and crush these motherfuckers <laughs> right on the street benson and stabler are doing like a stakeout and they see a car pull up benson's like it's them as in sergey and his gang mm -hmm. but claudia isn't there they're like we called her where is she sailor's like we don't have time or we have to take him so let's hop out let's go uh -huh. And then I'm like, why no binoculars? <laughs> <laughs> so, so they roll up on a bunch of dudes talking and arrest Sergey. Stabler has his finger on the trigger, pointing his gun right at the dudes behind Sergey as they're taking him to the car. Yeah. Then while Benson's getting him in there, fucking Stabler's phone rings. And the camera zooms in so hard. Yeah, and you're like, oh, shit. Christopher Maloney's acting here. D his face just changes just enough for you to know that he just was told something fucked yeah. up. Right. Cut to Metro Correctional Center. There's just a mountain of ambulances and people dead all over the grounds. It is chaos. Claudia's mm -hmm. standing over a dead Gavin. He's just riddled with bullets. Mm -hmm. Someone got Gavin's transfer shit and masked as a guard and fucking opened fire. This interaction was so fucking weird to me. I know. Benson and Stabes are talking to Claudia. Benson's like, so what's your next move to Claudia? And Claudia's like, um, go to your room. <laughs> she's not going to tell her anything, but Claudia just kind of shrugs and she's like, don't have one. And she starts to walk away and Sabler goes, mm -hmm. Claudia, if you need anything. <laughs> and she's like. <laughs> I wanted her to walk away with like both middle fingers in the air. You know what I mean? Yeah. But she just like I, smiled and was like, thanks. Yeah. And then I was like, is it just me or did Benson and Sabler just spend this whole episode <laughs> royally fucking up like four investigations? Yeah. And getting like people murdered? You still want help though. Do you want I could not I could not believe that Craigan <laughs> wasn't like, get in my office when they came back after fucking Yeah. They were all just like, Hey, are you guys all right? And he's like, We got your back. And I'm like, Are you are you what? 
you're interfering with an FBI investigation. The brass is going to be in my butthole. Like, there's so many things that we... He was probably just tired. He's like, oh my God, I've said this enough. These guys are going to do whatever they want yeah. fucking anyway. I'm never going to fire these guys. I'm going to open this bottle of Chardonnay and hang out in a lawn chair and watch these guys play on the swing set. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Not only does his name get dropped in this episode, which I think is a little Easter egg. Mm -hmm. The relationship and actions after Witsek for Peter sound familiar as well. So like I'm watching this going, I think that they modeled it slightly after Sammy Gravano's shit. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about Sammy the Bull Gravano, the single most important witness to ever testify against the mob. And I'm going to try really hard not to nerd out on the history and branching details or we're going to be here all day. Let's get my internal misogyny for this shit out of the way right now okay uh -huh. i am so enamored by this shit um but i know that it's like insanely problematic of course obviously it's for a criminal sure. enterprise yeah. tiny bit of background to set the scene okay okay the mafia was started in Sicily in the Middle Ages. A lot of people don't realize how old this shit is. Yeah, I guess. I never... Thousands of years. It was started to yeah. combat invading armies and relied heavily on vigilantism. Okay. Sure. Over time, it evolved into this secret society, which was then responsible for protection, justice, survival. Historically, this thing was honorable and admirable. It wasn't until the 1920s that it turned criminal. So when this organization made its way to America, it was an amalgam of loyalty and criminal activity. That was also okay. in the 20s, but it wasn't recognized as a, quote, sinister criminal organization by the actual government until the 50s. They called it La Cosa Nostra, which means this thing of ours. The expectation is that it was put before everything else your family comes second your kid could be on their deathbed but if the boss calls for you you leave their side and report to them your wife could be giving birth doesn't fucking matter if you get called you go yeah. there is a well-known set of rules first be italian sure and then it kind of evolved it was like you have to be from sicily and then it's like well you have to be italian and then it's like well you have to be italian like on your dad's side the side that matters okay. Right. At the tippy tippy top of this list of rules is the thing that they took an oath to. It's called Omerta. That's the code of silence. You're not supposed to mess with anybody else's wife, kids, deal drugs, do drugs. You can't have any relatives that are cops. You can't be seen with cops. Mm -hmm. You can't just introduce yourself to another member when meeting them. You have to be introduced by a mutual member. So like you might know a guy already, but if he hasn't been made yet, he isn't considered, quote, a friend of ours. So when somebody does get made, you may be introduced to somebody that you already know, but another made guy will introduce you to him saying, you know, this is so-and-so, a friend of ours. He's a friend of ours. And that's code for this guy's made. He's also a member of the mafia. And okay. that kind of thing's in place to prevent undercovers and shit. Like it is notoriously hard to infiltrate the Italian mob. They're like a fucking well-oiled machine. Interesting. Structurally, the commission was put in place in the 30s by Lucky Luciano to oversee all of the families. Everything's supposed to be approved by them just to ensure there's order. Over time, it really just got honed down to being just about the five families in New York. The Bananos, the Columbos, the Gambinos, the Genovese, and the Lucchese's. 
everything that's done, every move that's made in regards to the five families, the five New York families as a whole needs to be approved by the commission just to ensure there's order. Okay. The hierarchy of each of these families has a super strict chain of command as well. At the top is the boss or the Don. The -hmm. second in command is the underboss. Then there's the consigliere, who is an advisor to the boss. Under those three dudes are captains, and those guys are in charge of crews. Crews are made up of maid guys who are basically foot soldiers. They're doing all the dirty work. And associates. Associates are doing the same shit as Mm -hmm. these maid guys are doing, except they have not taken their oath of omerta yet. They're in the process of proving themselves to the family with the intention of becoming a maid man. Okay, now that we have that loose understanding, right, of like what this is, Mm -hmm. you just need that basic uh, skeleton. Okay, let's get into it. Salvatore Gravano was born on March 12th, 1945, and raised with his two older sisters in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, New York. His parents had both come over from Sicily. When he was young, his mom was a seamstress and his dad was a painter. Eventually, his dad ran a dress factory. These were hardworking, straight-laced immigrants, okay? Right. There was always a mob presence in the neighborhood. Sammy remembers being out with his dad once when he was a kid and seeing mob dudes and asking his dad, who are those guys? His dad said, Sammy, those are bad guys, but they're our bad guys. See, the families in each of these neighborhoods, the mob families in each of these neighborhoods, had a a sense of responsibility to the people who lived there. So regular everyday people would go to them for help, for uh, issues. And it was known that they were there to oversee the community. Mm -hmm. According to Gravano, when he was young, some kids in the neighborhood had taken his bike. He confronted them and got in this huge fucking fight, fought off like two bigger kids. Local mob guys were hanging out across the street and watch the entire thing go down. They eventually Mm -hmm. came across the street, kind of broke it up and was like, get the fuck out of here to these other boys. And Sammy was left alone. He had his bike back, but he's crying. And these dudes are like, why are you upset? You won the fight. And it was Mm -hmm. this interaction that got him his nickname. These guys are kind of talking over him and says, and they says to each other, I got to not do this. (laughs) And they said to each other, look at this kid. He's like a little bull. And that nickname, when they give you a name, it just sticks. Yeah. Um, And he was also called Sammy from like the very beginning because he had an Uncle Sam and somebody was like, he looks like Uncle Sam. And so then they just didn't call him Sal. They called him Sam. Yeah. Being noticed by these dudes was fucking awesome to these kids. These guys ran the neighborhoods. They had cars, women, fucking fist-sized wads of money. They were feared and respected. These gangsters were like top aspiration to local kids. Yeah. So by the time he was a teen, Sammy's running with this little group called the Rampers. They were a team of dance fucking bad guys. No, doesn't it sound like a, they should be like, night fight. Yeah, it does. We fight. I mean, it was a genuine gang. They were stealing cars. They were pulling B&Es. And he thought nothing of hurting somebody. Like he'd break a leg, break an arm. It didn't phase him. Right. Meanwhile, he is struggling in school. He had dyslexia and he didn't do well. He was deemed a slow learner and held back twice. At 16, he Mm. was sent to school for, it was literally called a school for incorrigibles, which basically is like hopeless cases, and then was kicked out of there when he was 16. So his dad really tried to redirect him, but, you know, what what could he do? Like, this is what he was surrounded with, and this is kind of who he was. 
But then in 1964, he was drafted by the U.S. Army and served for two years before being honorably discharged. Upon returning home, he met and married his wife, Deborah, and they went on to have two kids, Gerard and Karen. Okay, back to the mafia. In 1970, at 24, Gravano was asked to do a piece of work. In the mob, they called killing someone work. Okay. He didn't hesitate. The mark was Joe Colucci, a friend of Sammy. It sounds bad, and it is, but... When they put together a hit team, there was almost always someone on it who was close to the person getting killed. It just made it easier to draw them to whatever location they were going to be murdered at. You never knew who was going to kill you. It's cold as shit, but that's what they did. Okay, so on the evening that Joe Colucci died, they went out drinking. Sammy got in the back seat on the way home. Joe was in the front. And Sammy shot him twice in the back of the head. Oh. So these guys went out to Far Rockaway and dumped his body. And after they dumped him, Sammy shot him in the back three more times. In an interview with Diane Sawyer in recounting the story, he said, quote, I remember something that surprised me, that I had no remorse at all. Mm. God, I remember watching this interview in real time. I was like 13. And my dad is just as deep into this shit as I am. And that's I'm sure that's where yeah. I get it from. But we were like at the edge of our seats watching fucking Diane Sawyer interview this guy. It was insane that a former member of the mafia was doing like a two-part 2020 or whatever the fuck. Yeah. After that murder, he was graduated. He was treated like the top dudes of the city, the guys he looked up to growing up. No waiting at the clubs, Mm -hmm. handshakes, respect. This willingness to do this had really proven him to be loyal to the family and all that other bullshit that they valued. Mm -hmm. He was an associate for many years. Like it takes a long time to earn your way in if you ever even do. Okay. And on top of that, they had the books closed for a super long time. So they weren't even making guys for a number of years. So when they opened them back up, he was in the second round of guys in their family to take this blood oath. So in 1976, he pleaded his oath in a dark, smoky basement. Everybody's there for the ritual. So the ceremony goes like this. The head of the family, Paul Castellano, head of the Gambinos, asks him if he wants to be a part of the family. He says, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he asks him, if I asked you to kill someone, would you do it? And he said, yeah. And he's like like, well, with what finger would you pull the trigger? So Sammy holds out his index finger and they prick it with a pin. They take that finger and press it onto, there's like an index card of a saint, press it onto that card. And then they have Sammy hold the card and light it on fire. They tell him, if you ever betray the brotherhood, may your soul burn for eternity like this saint. It was all very dramatic. They had this shit Mm -hmm. set up to where if you're in, there's no way out. And not only where it's like, it's not like you don't want to leave out of fear necessarily, but when you're in, like you believe in it. Like, to a cult degree where it's like, this is the only thing that matters, you know? Yeah. Okay. So let's, we're going to go back like four years, right? In 1972, Francis Ford Coppola puts out the movie, The Godfather, Mm -hmm. Brando, Pacino, De Niro, Keaton, Khan, everybody is in this fucking movie. It changed everything. It was the first movie of its kind. It glamorized the public's perception of the mafia and introduced a broader audience to the secret society. For the first time, there are outsider eyes on them that weren't there before. These old school guys, they wanted to lay low. They didn't want this kind of attention. Yeah. Let's keep this in mind, okay? They did not have this presence in the past. It wasn't like, oh, look at these cool guys. Fucking zoot suit riots. It was like, (laughs) these guys are fucking dirtbags. Yeah. So... Somewhere in here, Sammy and John Gotti are introduced. They were both members of the Gambino crime family. Gotti was a captain at the time. Sammy was an acting captain, or maybe he was under Tato at this time. Tato was his captain, and then eventually he became an acting captain. But they were aware of each other 
for quite a period of time, but had separate crews. So eventually, Gotti brings something to Gravano and a few others. He wanted to take out Paul Castellano, the boss. Okay. The proper channel for that kind of hit would be to have approval from the commission. Yeah. And Why do they want to take him out? Well, I'll tell you. Oh, okay. And it had to have a majority vote. Like, obviously, it's like, we want to take out Paul Castellano, who's in charge of the Gambino crime family. Well, he sat on the commission, but so did the boss of the Lucchese's, the Columbo's, the Bananos, the Genovese, everybody. But they just needed a majority vote. They did not go okay. to the commission. Oh. Gotti didn't really care because he thought he'd squeak by with it because everybody liked him and nobody liked Paul Castellano in his perception. Now, the hit on Paul Castellano could be an entire chaser in itself. Yeah. The Cliff's Notes version of why Paul Castellano was killed goes like this. So Gotti's crew was in hot water. There were rumors that they were getting involved in drugs, doing drugs, dealing drugs, whatever. Okay. Not okay in the mob and other things. There's plenty of stuff that there could have been a hit ordered on any number of them, including John Gotti. And he was fucking aware of that. And he was trying to get ahead of it. They had already been talking about doing this hit and the underboss Neil Della Croce was on his deathbed. He's dying of cancer. He didn't approve of the hit but then when he died, Castellano didn't come to his funeral. And because he didn't come to his funeral, then everybody's pissed and insulted. And they're like, that's zero respect, da da da, unheard of. Then immediately following Neil's death, he made Tommy Bellotti his underboss. Tommy Bellotti was his bodyguard. So all of these things combined led to this hit. Not only that, but he wasn't a super well-liked guy. He didn't hang out with the street guys and just a, he lived at a different level. So the main dudes who ran the hit on Paul Castellano and Tommy Bellotti were Sammy Gravano, John Gotti, and Frankie DeChico. Frankie DeChico has a whole ass backstory, his own reputation. His crew was crazy, but it was kind of that trifecta of guys that then took over the Gambino crime family. Gravano and DeChico were like, should we participate in this? We kind of want to, but <laughs> is it a good idea? Spent a lot of time talking about it. And Gravano was like, Frankie, you should be the boss. We should nominate you to be the boss after Castellano and Bellotti are dead. But DeChico was the one who said this, quote, John's fucking ego is too big. I could be his underboss, but he couldn't be mine. Look, he's got balls. He's got brains. He's got charisma. If we can control him to stop the gambling and all his flamboyant bullshit, he could be a good boss. Sammy, I'll tell you what, we'll give him a shot. Let him be the boss. If it don't work within a year, me and you will kill him. I'll become the boss and you'll be my underboss and we'll run the family right. So December 16th, 1985, Sammy, along with an entire crew, pulled off the hit of Castellano and Tommy Bellotti, who was driving him at the time. They were gunned down, exiting their car in front of Spark Steakhouse by these dudes that had, no joke, bought matching white jackets and fedoras. No way. Yeah. <laughs> It was like seven guys. It was like a bachelor party of guys in matching outfits. <laughs> You're like, okay, before we kill this guy, should we like dress up? Like, but like the same. <laughs> um, okay, I'm kind of fucking around. They were Russian hats. So obviously the idea is to be hidden in plain sight. Like if somebody were to see one of them running away, they're going to be like, those are Russian guys. This hit happened out on the street around Christmas time at dinner time. So it was the most out in the open hit that had probably ever happened. So this murder, this fucking hit, it shook shit. This blew up everything. This was fucking unheard of. Everybody's like, how is there this subplot that didn't follow protocol? Who did it? Mm. Who's going to pay for it? So it started this fucking war. Okay. Once the dust somewhat settled, Gotti became the boss 
This is that John Gotti guy, right? Yes. Flashy, attention-seeking, charismatic. He loved the celebrity of it. He was the Goodfellas version of a gangster. Yeah. He loved the media. Everyone across the country knew who he was, and he fucking loved it. Right. This is not what the family was supposed to be about. Remember, it is supposed to be a secret society. Yeah. Sammy fucking hated it. Yeah. He hated that, that Gotti was like that. Yeah. So in this, not right away, but because I can't talk to you about this all day, Eventually, Sammy becomes the underboss to John Gotti. Not only was Gravano rising the ranks of the organization, he was running a very successful construction company. They had basically all of the state and city contracts. And this is how New York was run. The mafia had their hands in absolutely everything. He said this when in that interview with Diane Sawyer, he said this, quote, I literally marvel at the sight of Manhattan when I see it because I controlled it. When I see it at night, those lights and everything about it, I think of Donald Trump and everybody else who couldn't build a building if I didn't want them to that got me off i mean can you imagine like just these guys with just just power over this kind of a city right but looking back he says there's no honor in what we did it was all based on greed they used violence and threats of violence to tack on charges to in every industry in new york if a pair of jeans was sold they got a cut of it a gallon of gas absolutely everything you couldn't make a move without putting money in their pocket even though Gravano had admitted to not feeling a thing when he murdered his pal Joe Colucci, he said that he had a couple that were really difficult for him. So Louis Melito was a best childhood friend. Their kids grew up together. Louis's kids called him Uncle Sammy. These guys committed a bunch of murders together. But in the end, Gravano aided Damn. in Melito's murder. Gravano's mm. quoted as saying, quote, this is the life. He betrayed us and he was killed. Another was Nick Scabetta. Now this is going to be fucked. That was his wife's fucking brother. <gasps> Oh, I bet you she was so pissed. She didn't find out about it for years. Years. Oh, so she didn't know how he died. Oh. Mm-mm. No. So his brother-in-law, Nick, was using drugs, using Sammy's name to borrow money from loan sharks, insulting another member's daughter, which was a terrible offense. But the absolute worst was he went to the cops to get a rival arrested. And Gravano had talked to him multiple times, like, you got to fucking knock it off. Yeah. But then the order for the hit came down and Gravano initially was like, I'm not going to do this. And they were like, you have to. And he's like, "Okay." Yeah. And he participated in the murder. Yeah. Authorities were only able to confirm Nick Scabetta's murder when they later found his severed hand. Okay. Dismemberment was a very popular tool used by members of the mafia. I mean, there's the classic, the sleeping with the fishes thing, the concrete boots, the whatever. All of that is ways of disposing of bodies that they actually used. Yeah. So Gravano justified a lot of this shit to himself by saying, these guys know what they're getting into. You're in the mob. You know the rules. You broke the rules. And this is the penalty. Yeah. A, B, C, D. You put yourself here. That's it. I basically carried out your suicide. Yeah. So the FBI is following Gotti. Okay. Following Sammy, following Gotti. And openly, they see them all the time. I mean, Sammy knew the names of the guys that followed him. Mm -hmm. It's working out great for the FBI because Gotti's got a big fucking mouth. And the secret society was just basically out in the open because of him. Gotti felt like he was untouchable. Yeah. Every time that they thought they had something on him and they took him to trial, he was acquitted. Every single time. Racketeering, loan sharking, bribing witnesses, on and on and on. He earned the nickname the Teflon Don because nothing would stick to him. Yeah. Behind the scenes, the thing that was actually happening is Sammy was bribing jurors and rigging the trial. Yeah. You know, there was one guy who I think was paid $60,000 to vote not guilty. Damn. 
Sammy was constantly telling Gotti that they needed to get under the radar. They're being followed by the FBI and constant paparazzi. There's footage of Gotti leaving his house and the car is just surrounded with media. Yeah. Being like, hey, what what you up to today, buddy? Nice members only jacket. You know. (laughs) But Gotti would defend it. And he's like, oh, it's my public. And Sammy's like, we're not supposed to have public, dude. Yeah. We're the mafia. What are you doing? But he just loved the attention. So one of the things that Gotti did as the boss is he set up shop at the Ravenite Social Club. It was their headquarters. It's where they had all their meetings. Gotti was there nearly every day and members were required to show up multiple times a week as well. Well, the FBI bugged the entire place. What? including the apartment above the club. If Gotti needed to have a super, super top secret conversation, that's where they went, to the apartment above the club. Okay. But they got everything on tape. Okay. So these recordings became known as the Gotti tapes. And on these tapes was John Gotti talking shit about his right-hand man, Sammy Gravano. Mm. The dude was paranoid and jealous. Everybody knew and respected Gravano. How does Gotti know that Sammy wasn't going to pull the same shit on him that he did on Paul Castellano? Mm. So Gotti started implicating Sammy and shit. He was acting like Sammy was out of control. Like, oh, he's coming and telling me he wants me to put hits on these guys. He wants approval to kill these guys because he wants to take over their companies and whatever. And, you know, just setting the table to pass the buck to his underboss. And the FBI had all of this on tape. They didn't know what the FBI had on tape, okay? So December 11th, 1990, the FBI raids the Ravenite Social Club. Gotti, Gravano, and Frankie DeChico were all arrested. They finally have Gravano in an interrogation room. Mm -hmm. The FBI was Regina George, Gotti was Gretchen Wieners, and Gravano (laughs) was Katie Heron. And they're like, wouldn't you say that's a pretty bitchy thing of her to say? And he's like, yeah, I guess it was pretty bitchy. (laughs) They're like, ugh. Sammy hears these tapes and he immediately feels betrayed because in his mind, he wouldn't take a shit without permission from Gotti. Mm-hmm. And he's like, this isn't how this is supposed to work. Because again, Gravano really believed in what this was supposed to stand for. Now, this is his version also. So after this, Sammy initially makes the decision that he's going to kill Gotti in prison. He's going to get a shank and he's going to get him in a room and what he said, cut his throat. But in doing that, he would end up in prison for life guaranteed. Mm-hmm. So he did what he thought was his only other option. The worst thing you could do in that life. He cooperated with the government. Okay. He turned state's evidence. So November 8th, 1991 is when he flipped and changed everything. I can't emphasize enough how surprised the entire organization was. In the papers, he was called Sammy the Rat. I mean, it was splashed all over everywhere. Like it's a movie people are watching, Mm -hmm. you know? He lost all respect. He almost didn't go through with it because his daughter Karen didn't approve of it. She was taught her entire life about loyalty and this was the worst thing her father could do. And the FBI had to work separately Separately with her to convince her so that Sammy would turn to cooperate. Right. In total, Sammy Gravano admitted to killing 19 people in his career. And people have called him a serial killer mm-hmm. because of that. And to that, he said, quote, I never killed a legitimate person. I never woke up one morning saying I'd like to go kill somebody. It was for what you did. And most of the times you did, it was something that you deserve to die for. So I don't have no mercy for you, really. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note, even though it's still extremely fucked up that you're killing people, like a mafia hit is not one guy going out and doing it. There's like a a plan and a map and multiple guys. It's kind of a group outing. So even though Sammy was 
on 19 murders. He was on 19 hits. He did not pull the trigger on all of them. But these are 19 murders that he was involved in. He had to testify at the trial of John Gotti. Gotti had 13 charges against him. Because of Sammy's nine days of testimony, he was finally found guilty on all counts. Okay. He got life in prison without parole. And that day, like, this is how idolized he was. There was a riot outside of the courthouse, like a literal car flipping fucking riot. Weird. George Gabriel, former FBI agent, said, quote, Sammy helped me shut out the rest of the family and bosses and underbosses of the rest of the families. I think we totaled over 38 convictions. He arguably led to the demise of organized crime in New York. Wow. End quote. In exchange for his cooperation, Gravano received a deal. For his crimes, he would receive no more than 20 years. He was sentenced to five. Damn. And like hearing the victims' families reflect on that, it's really heartbreaking mm -hmm. because they're like, he legit got five and he got time served. So in the end, like when they were like, you have five years, he spent less than a year. Well, wow. And they were like, Jesus Christ, like is my dad's life worth nothing? You know? Yeah. When he was questioned, I don't remember if he said this to Diane Sawyer, when he was talking about like, oh, how could you betray the boss and whatever? And he said, John's a double crosser. I'm a master double crosser. We played chess and he lost. Mm -hmm. After he got out in 1994, he lived under witness protection. That lasted a very short amount of time. He left witness protection in 1995. I mean, you have to do a lot of things that other people are telling you to do. And he wasn't a fan of that. Right. So he was like, fuck it. I'm going to live with my family in Phoenix and... I'm going to settle in and get under the radar. Just kidding. He contributed to a best-selling book about him being completely out in the open. Yeah. So he got killed, right? No. What? He did not. Then he got involved in the drug trade. So remember in the episode, Cragen was like, yeah. Sammy the Bull serving 15 for drugs, right? Mm -hmm. This is that. Yeah. Police say that he financed a statewide narcotics ring selling ecstasy. Also involved were his two adult children and his wife, Deborah. Mm -hmm. It was not a small operation. It was a multi-million dollar drug ring. Wow. Good for him. <laughs> Way to get back on your feet. <laughs> so after they were caught, Gravano made a deal to save his kids from incarceration this time. He pretty much took the blame for everything. In the end, his son got nine years. His wife and daughter were sentenced to probation and Sammy received a 20 year sentence and served 15. Okay. John Gotti died of throat cancer in 2002. Uh, he was still in prison. He never got out. Karen Gravano, Sammy Gravano's daughter, was on Mob Wives. I remember when Mob Wives came out. It was 2011 to 2016 and Mob Wives came out and I'm like, <gasps> I'm surprised they don't... Um get in trouble that with that shit like from other mob people i know the mob isn't what it used to be though yeah i want you to guess what he's doing now uh what he's got a podcast <laughs> shut up and i started listening to it and it is i just love listening to old gangsters tell stories no matter how fucked up they are but yeah it's actually super interesting because then you get like these detailed accounts of shit that happened does he interview any of his like buddies? i don't know i'm just i'm just like one uh episode in and he's telling a story he's telling the story of when they were arrested yeah Next week, it's season four, episode six, mm. Angels. A young boy suffocates while hiding in the luggage compartment of an airport bus. This leads SVU into the investigation of a fucking gross-ass child molestation ring. Mm. Yay. Yay. 
Okay, follow us on all social media at SVU Pod. Check out our Patreon. We've got a bunch of great stuff on there. Fun stuff, friendship stuff. Come get all the extras. Check out our website, svupod.com. We've got merch there. Mm-hmm. Cute tees and hats and hoodies mm-hmm. and sticker packs. Hashtag little bit loud. Hashtag little bit loud. Hashtag little bit, little bit loud. Hashtag little. Okay, love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Oh my god, is everything six degrees of separation from that? Yeah, to me fucking Simba. (laughs) To me fucking Simba. He can Akuna my Tata. Wow. (laughs) Come back with a warrant. (laughs) To our Elite Squad patrons, Haley K, Sonia W, Jenny S, Sky K, Marissa M, Elkie H, Sarah A, Annie G, Mary D, Andrew. Andrew. Rebecca D, Miranda B, Shelby W, Lex, Emily T, Kayla W, Mallory G, Bonita R, Marin, Vanessa, Amy P, Jess M, Summer M, Melanie G, Courtney W, Ursula S, Emily A, Katrina C, Kate H, Uyanga, Nicole R, Julia P, Sapphire, Kayla, Allison B, Catherine M, Kate P, Jessica S, Nicole M, Acacia V, Daniel W, Kelsey D, Jenna M, Tammy J, Sarah G, Crystal, Lucy M, and Trisha S. We appreciate all you do. (laughs) You guys support us and we appreciate... You guys support me more than my parents. (laughs) I feel more supported by you guys than I do by my own family.